Welcome to Old School. Um, Lauren, this is our 10th episode. It's bananas, we're like, right? We're like professionals now. This is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's exciting. It's been a fun ride. Uh, this is another t- uh, action-packed two weeks. Yeah, there was a lot of good stuff. January 11th to the 31st. I did all this research and I was typing up all this stuff and then I got to like the end of the, the two week period and I was like, I saw the Challenger explosion. I was like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I actually don't have anything for January 11th. So I have something for January 12th that I thought was interesting. January 12th, 1971, the Harrisburg Seven are indicted by a federal grand jury. The Harrisburg Seven uh, were a group of peace activists, six of whom were Roman Catholic priests and nuns. And they were charged with conspiring to raid federal offices, to bomb government property, and to kidnap Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Sure. Yeah, I mean, go for the gold. And this was all, you know, anti-Vietnam War. This was an effort to, the, the accusation, I mean, they were peace activists. So the names of the defendants were Philip Berrigan, Elizabeth McAllister, Reverend Neil McLaughlin, Reverend Joseph Wenderoth, Ekbal Ahmed, Anthony Skoblik, and Mary Kane Skoblik. Ahmed was a journalist and political scientist, and he was the only member of the group who wasn't Catholic, and he was a layperson. So many of these people had already been arrested uh, and imprisoned before for acts of civil disobedience in the name of peace and nuclear disarmament. Uh, One of the nuns, Elizabeth McAllister, she was a member of the Religious of the Sacred Heart of Mary, which is the order of nuns that, like, raised me. (laughs) They they ran my grade school and my high school. So um, they're... That's neat. Yeah, they're very... um, like they have a lot of schools or education order. But the trial began in spring of 1972. The Harrisburg 7's defense attorney did something unusual. He called no witnesses. And I have a quote from the Library of Congress. I, this is, I couldn't find a lot on this. There's a, like a, a kind of abbreviated Wikipedia article. And then when I searched it in a broad search, I could only find a few things. Um, some Catholic literature, like books that were written. And then also... The Library of Congress had has an archive of court courtroom art, you know, like the drawings that courtroom artists do. Mm-hmm. And this was the caption for the artwork. The lead defense attorney, Ramsey Clark, sensing that the jury would be sympathetic to priests and nuns, did not call any witnesses to the stand and said only, Your Honor, the defendants shall always seek peace. They continue to proclaim their innocence. The defense rests. This ploy paid off for the defendants. Their trial ended in a hung jury. So they, they, they got off. That's crazy. I like that uh, strategy. Yeah. And honestly, the, the evidence against them was kind of weak. They, it was a, a guy came forward who was imprisoned with one of, one of these priests was already in jail for civil, already in prison for civil disobedience. And this other guy, this, you know, this guy that had uh, came forward and was like, oh, I've been writing letters with that guy. And he's talking about doing this and kidnapping Henry Kissinger and all this stuff. And it turned out he was like, you know, just wasn't a, a good witness. So, but this is kind of an interesting, it just made me think of like an interesting side of the Catholic church that a lot of people don't know about. Well, at least like old school Catholic church, because this is kind of the Catholic, the Catholic church that I grew up with. Like I had religious teachers, religious studies teachers who were arrested and missed class. And we had substitutes because they were at a nuclear, anti-nuclear war protest and they were arrested. Oh, that's more fun than my Catholic school. Oh yeah. I mean, also, you know, and also priests and nuns were involved in the civil rights movement. You know, the, you see them in pictures of uh, on at marches and things like that. And th- this actually extends even to today or recently. Sister Megan Rice was arrested it for in 2012 for breaking into the Y-12 National Security Complex in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. This is probably, they said to date, this is the worst breach of, of a federal facility in history. She, she broke in, it's a nuclear complex, and she broke in to, you know, to damage, try to damage the facility. And she was 82 years old. <laughs> she was 82. That's more action than I've seen. Can you believe that? No, it's awesome. She was arrested at 82. And she, this, this woman, this awesome kick-ass lady, nun, she just died in this past October at the age of 90. Uh, she was 91 when she passed. In prison? Uh, no, she was out. She was given, <laughs> I guess because she was so old, she was aging and they, they gave her like a, you know, a reprieve or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um. The other people she was with, she was with an, a, another priest and another guy, and they were they were they were also arrested. So that's um, the secret. You just got to break the law when you're in your eighties. When you're really fucking old, yeah. 
Okay. But she'd also, she'd been arrested several times in the past. In the 90s, she was arrested for protesting torture, the use of torture at the School of the Americas. You know, that's that fucked up government facility where we train psychopaths to overturn foreign governments. Oh, and she's she went to my alma mater. She's We share an alma mater, so I thought that was cool. So that's Sister Megan Rice. Uh, I thought that was cool. Oh, I did see something for June 11th or January, January 11th. 11th. 1949, first snowfall recorded in L.A. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. I just only brought that up because you, you know, there. it did snow once when I was a kid. I think I was like maybe 12 or 13 and it didn't last long. It was like 20 minutes. I mean, it was crazy. It was early in the morning and it was so weird. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, because we're getting a blizzard on Saturday. So, oh no, um, you are. Yeah, oh, they're calling God. for a big one. Um, yeah, it's gonna blow your mind. So, did it like there was any accumulation, or it just fell and then it was gone? I, it, a little bit, like it was, um, like I would say, like a faint dusting for a few minutes. Like you know, we went outside and and like you couldn't even touch it. Like you touched it and it was gone. Like it was, it was pretty fun and exciting. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while, we get hail, but that's about it. We are thing about Southern California's weather is that it's so incredibly mild. Like even when it's really hot, it's dry. And I, I mean, it still sucks ass. I hate fucking hate anything over 90 or 85 even now. I'm such a baby. I hate it. I hate it here. It's so ungodly humid and yeah. disgusting. Like you take a shower and you walk outside and you want to go back in and take another shower. It was it's like disgusting. pointless. What was the point of the shower? You're oh, like drenched so in sweat again. I, I hate it. I did hate been, that about Philly. But it's, oh, it's even worse when it's in the city. Oh, yeah. It's just that thick air. It's disgusting. You don't miss that snow from living over here. I didn't mind snow as long as I didn't have to drive in it. Oh, yeah. Well, it's terrible when you drive. But I'd, I'd like a proper winter, you know, at least like I put a coat on, but no dice so far. It was a little chilly in December, but that's it. Womp womp. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for your struggles. Yeah, I know. First world problems. Um, and then, so so January 12th, I did the Harrisburg 7th. That was 1971. 1995, January 12th. OJ Simpson's murder trial begins. Now I, I just, there was too many deep dives in this episode. Like I'm not going to get into that, but you and I were um, teenagers. It was a big fucking deal. That was like like our prime. Like I remember, I remember like walking down the hallway, like popping my head into a classroom to hear the verdict. Yeah. I remember it was playing in the classroom. People were turning mm -hmm. on the TVs. I remember I was homesick and randomly put it on. And I swear to God, I saw the pictures of her body. It was before they stopped showing them on the camera. Oh. And it, cause it was these big blown up pictures. And I remember like I was laying on the couch, like half paying attention. I, I wasn't really like, you know, invested in this thing, but I was like, oh my God. It's terrible. Yeah. I was that like, is oh not my appropriate. God. And then that was it. They didn't, you didn't see it after that, but it was crazy. That I remember during the trial at one point they showed this weird like computer generated oh, I remember reenactment that. of how they thought. And it was that alone, there wasn't even blood. And that alone was disturbing. Horrifying. Yes. Horrifying. Yeah. The, you know, it was just a fucking shit show. Yeah. It was larger than life. It was yeah. crazy. Took over. So January 12th, 2010 is the, uh, see, I was trying to dodge. Like I, I don't want to deep dive too much in like the really depressing ones. Cause I don't want to focus on the sad stuff too much, but the earthquake in Haiti that killed 160,000 people. It was so sad. And they, they're still not recovered from it. Yeah. Horrible. Terrible. Okay. January 13th, 1962. Chubby Checkers, the twist reaches number one again. And I was like, again? What, what are you talking about? What, like, I, I thought that was so weird. So apparently, I, so I read, obviously, the Wikipedia, but I also read, there's a Vanity Fair article by James Walcott that talks about the influence of this song. But it first reached number one in 1960. It was like the quintessential... The 50s are over, like the prim proper 50s are over. It's 1960. This is the new, you know, this is a number one hit and this is the dance craze. So, and it was a, immediately a, a hit. The second, I don't know why it became, a, it again reached number one in a, two years later in 1962. But the next time this happened was 59 years later with Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. Oh, wow. So this is a really, and that was a Christmas song. That makes sense. Like po- songs become popular, you know, yeah. that song is hugely popular still at Christmas. But Chubby Checker song, the twist is not, you know, it's not a seasonal song, but it it's that popular. And um, the article was really interesting. It was talking about why, why this song was such a big deal. And it was originally recorded in 1959 by Hank Ballard. He saw teenagers on the dance floor in Florida 
twisting. And he was like, I'm going to write a song about it. And then Dick Clark heard the song and he's like, uh, Chubby Checker should record the song. Like he's got a really wholesome image and he's got a good voice and he should record the song. Uh, he did record it, became famous immediately. And it's the one we all know that nobody really knows the Hank Ballard one. Sorry, Hank. So, so Hank, Hank wasn't the first number one and then Chubby got the second. No, Chubby got both of them. <laughs> Chubby got both number ones. Poor Hank. Hmm. Um, so Chubby Checker's first live performance was at the Rainbow Club in Wildwood, New Jersey. And it, and that that song is so famous, it's ranked number 451 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. Also, this is a random tidbit. Chubby Checker's name is, in, is just a play on, on Fats Domino's nickname. Chubby Checker, Fats Domino. Oh, uh, there you go. Clever, right? Yeah. So, but anyway, it was a controversial, it was actually controversial when it came out. Cause it, cause it's like shaking your hips and your butt, you know, twisting back and forth. And it also was kind of crazy because you didn't need a partner. You could just go out on the dance floor. You didn't need a partner. You could do go solo. It was like, it was like uh, freeing, you know, everybody could do it. It was easy. It didn't have like those weird footwork movements, like other dances. Yeah. Maybe, it, maybe it got its num is second number one when I don't know, maybe a whole other group caught on to it or something. Like yeah. maybe it was, who knows? Yeah, when mainstream was played at like yeah. a club where older people hung out or something. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I don't know. I thought that was cool. Mm -hmm. So that's July 13th, 1962. July 13th, 1994. <laughs> oh my God. I'm going to burn in hell for laughing. Tanya Harding's bodyguard and another <laughs> co-conspirator are arrested for assaulting Nancy Kerrigan on January 6th, 1994. That's, and I just that put in my notes, what a shit show. That story is just ridiculous. That took over our lives too when it happened. Why? Why? <laughs> Do you remember that? Oh my God, I'm so good at burn in hell. No, that, Did you, when Nancy was hit, that's what she, she it was like on the camera. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's horrible. They really hurt her. And, but it was such a. She recovered. That's good. Bunch of characters. Oh, it's so trashy. Did you see that movie? Did you see the? Um, I, I did, Tanya? but I I did I did fall asleep through it. But what I did see was pretty. Uh, I loved it. It was pretty good. I yeah, loved I mean, it. She, it was one she, of, na she nailed it. Oh, totally. And it was one of those like kind of what's the word for that? Like, is it alternate? Not alternate reality, but like it's it's her story. So it's it's not accurate. No one's claiming right, it's right, accurate. Right. It's like at one point she like cocks a sawed off shotgun and looks at the camera and she's like, did this did not happen? Like she totally like, breaks the fourth wall, Uh huh. but it was good. I thought it was good, but that's what a shit show that was. It's just, it crazy. was a mess. It was a mess. And then, uh, just the schlubby bodyguard that was involved. And yeah. Her, it's like her, dumpy. her gross husband or ex-husband or whatever he was. And it was just such a stupid plot. I don't know. And she had like cheesy dyed hair and she wore a lot of makeup. And then Nancy Kerrigan was like, Miss Perfect oh yeah, pretty, it was, well, yeah, it was, like, it was, you know, they, and they totally sold it that way. Oh, absolutely. It was like, you know, this polished versus this, you know, girl growing up slumming it. And then but yeah. she was ultimately talented. I mean, she, oh my God, you know. she landed the first, she did something crazy. She landed the first ever, uh, some axle spinny thing where you jump triple, triple axle. It was something like that. And she did it. Yeah. She was like, really like, she was like a, a true athlete, like really like very strong athletic. and like strong Nancy Kerrigan looked like a Disney princess. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, she was the first American woman to successfully land a triple axel in competition and the second woman to do so in history behind Midori Ito. So, and uh, I, I actually watched that clip of her landing it. And it's actually kind of cute because she, she beautifully like sticks it. Like it looks awesome. And then she kind of cheers her. So she like does like a little fist bump, like for herself. She like nailed it's it. kind of cute. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That she nailed it. Oh, Tanya. January 15th, 1929 was, is the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. Which we now celebrate. And I actually want to actually dedicate time to his assassination the way that we did for Oswald, because I, the conspiracies are just as interesting. I did want to, I just want to say a couple things that I did not know about. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, he was actually born Michael King Jr. in Atlanta, Georgia, January 15th, 1929. His dad was a prominent Baptist minister. And in 1934, his church sent King Sr. to Berlin as part of a multi-nation tour for the meeting of the Baptist World Alliance. And while in Ger Germany, King Sr. learned about Martin Luther and his Protestant Reformation, the BWA, that's the um, Baptist World Alliance, observed really gross things about Nazism. I mean, it was starting to like take off in Germany at the time. So they issued this really powerful statement 
condemning violence and prejudice towards Jewish people, people of color, and any oppressed group anywhere in the world. And uh, upon arriving home from this really intense trip, King Sr. decided that he was changing his name to Martin Luther in honor of Martin Luther and that he was changing his son's name because he's a junior. So that's why their name is Martin Luther instead of Michael. Wow. Because he was just a little little five-year-old when his dad came back from that trip. So mm-hmm. uh, Martin Luther King Jr. married Coretta Scott in 1957, and they had four children. And Coretta Scott King in her, was in her own right an activist. And I thought this was so cool. She was friends, good friends with Rod Serling and, and Rod Serling's wife. They met at Antioch College. They were like huh. classmates together. And they were both involved in civil rights. So I thought that was interesting. Ran, really random tidbit. Uh, and of course, we all know um, Martin Luther King is famous for his leadership of the civil rights movement, but he was also outspoken against the Vietnam War. And I thought this was cool. In 1968, so that's four years after the Civil Rights Act was signed into law, King formed the Poor People's Campaign as a multiracial army of the poor. And the plan was to have the march on Washington to engage in nonviolent civil disobedience at the Capitol until cre- Congress created a, quote, Economic Bill of Rights for Poor Americans. His vision was for that change that was more revolutionary than just reform. He cited systematic flaws of racism, poverty, militarism, and materialism. And of course, we know what happened. He was assassinated a few months later on April 4th, 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee by James Earl Ray. So a lot of people think that because he that last this last, most recent campaign before his death sounds an awful lot like socialism, um, you know, uniting people under the your your class, that maybe that was just too much instigation for the FBI. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. So I did skim the conspiracy theories about the assassination, and they are very similar to JFK's. And in I thought this, I did not know this, in 1999, a civil suit was filed for a wrongful death against a co-conspirator of the shooting. And the jury of this civil suit found unanimously that King was killed as a result of a government conspiracy. And I'm not going to, like I said, I won't deep dive this part, this conspiracy part, because this is just celebrating his birth. But Coretta Scott King herself said, there is abundant evidence of a major high-level conspiracy in the assassination of my husband. Wow. Yeah. So, and it's- Oh, well, I'm looking forward to the podcast in April. April. Oh, my God. I cannot believe this two weeks. Uh, So- we are still on January 15th, 1947, the body of Elizabeth Short, also known as the Black Dahlia, is discovered in Los Angeles. Yeah, I thought about going for that one, but yeah. It's, yeah, but that's really messed up. It's unsolved. Killer's never been found. Lots of conspiracy theories there, lots of weird theories about you know who it would be, but I don't know that that, that kind of thing will ever get solved. So um, January 15th, 1967, the Rolling Stones appear on the Ed Sullivan Show, and they reluctantly agree to edit the lyrics of their song, Let's Spend the Night Together, to Let's Spend Some Time Together, which is like the douchiest thing I've ever heard. And <laughs> you can watch the clip. So lame. It's so lame. And um, Mick is on all the close-ups when he says that line, <laughs> let's, let's spend some time together. He rolls his eyes like visibly, <laughs> like on purpose to protest it. So, That's great. 2018, January 15, 2018, Dolores O'Reardon dies. We all remember that. That wasn't that long ago. It's very sad. At the age of 46, Drowned really in her sad. bathtub, sedated by alcohol, apparently, like passed out. Very she sad. had like a dark stretch there too. Yeah, and she really was sad. Um, she was molested by a like a family friend and just terrible. Very sad. Really sad. That's like the soundtrack of my high school. I uh, the, fucking the love freaking, the freaking cranberries. The cranberries were amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I, that's such a unique sound. I always love that you could hear her accent. Did you ever notice that? You can like oh, hear. Yeah. It's you're not so, trying to fight it. It's so. There. No, it was so distinct. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. There was no mistaking a cranberry song when you yeah. heard her voice. Um, yeah. yeah it's a very cool sound. Really sad. So do you have anything else for January 15th? I have nothing for the 15th. Okay. So do you have anything for the 16th? I have one thing for the 16th. Okay. Lay it on me. January 16th, 1974, Jaws by Peter Benchley is published. Did you ever read that? I did not read it. Did you read it? I did read it. I love that movie. You know that it's a running joke with me and my husband with the, uh, oh, what? The part. what? <laughs> yeah. Do you remember we discovered that we noticed that? And uh-huh. I, both of us thought that we were the only one that noticed it. Yeah. So to explain explain that scene okay. that we're talking about. Yeah, to our listeners. So there's a weird scene that in Jaws that both Lauren and I happened to notice that 
it's after they've, they think they've caught Jaws. It's the fishermen are all scrambling out because they want the reward. They're all scrambling out in their boats and they, they're trying to catch Jaws. And these three guys are up on, they've strung up this poor shark that's, you know, pretty big, but they're like, what kind of shark is this? I don't know what kind of shark is this. And then what's the guy, who's the actor? Richard Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. Richard Dreyfus's character looks over it's and he like goes, "It's a tiger shark." Yeah, he goes, "It's a tiger shark." And this, this weird scene. One of the Does, fishermen turns right to the camera. It's like a like, close oh. up of his doughy face. Yeah. And he goes, "A what?" <laughs> so weird. Such weird editing. Yeah, I think if you Google or go on YouTube, "A what?" Jaws. That's yeah, you might be able to find up. it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure anyway. somebody clipped it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's all we think of. Yeah. Think. So um. I love that movie. You watch it anytime it's on. I think it's great. So I was just, I don't even know how I, I must've bought it. I I don't know how I ended up with the book, but I read it and it's totally different than shut up. Yeah. So even when I was reading, I didn't know when I started reading it, but I mean, same character names and everything, but a lot of differences, but like the beginning is the same with the the murder of the young girl, the murder of the little boy on the beach, that Alex little boy, that that's all happens. Um, the, you know, the dynamic with the sheriff trying to close the beaches versus the mayor wanting to keep it open for the, um you know, the crowds. Yeah. But there's all these like sub stories going on. So the book was published in on January 16th, 1974. It was a bestseller for 44 weeks. Wow. But it had mixed reviews because a lot of people, if you read it, the, it's not the best writing you're ever going to read in oh. your life, but the story it's, you know, it's, it's captivating because it's suspenseful. Um, is it like a beach read or what, you know, that people call that? Like, well, I guess you yeah. don't want to read about those shark <laughs> on the beach. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but you know, maybe, like a fluffy kind of. Yeah, maybe like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not like a, a serious, you know, novel or anything, but, okay. but the, the producers for the movie Jaws had bought the rights to it before it was even like published. They had oh, read wow. the novel and they bought it because they were like, this is definitely gold wow. for a movie. So the movie was released June of 1975 and the same, the author did like three versions of the, of the screenplay and, you know, Spielberg wanted to just take out all these tidbits from the novel. And Spielberg ultimately admitted that in the final script, there was 27 scenes that were not in the novel that were wow. in the movie. <laughs> so some of the differences, which are significant, the mayor who's such a scumbag in the yeah. movie, he's, a jerk in the book too, but his whole thing is he's mixed up with the mafia. That's why oh. he's got all the mafia has all this money in the real estate during the Dang. in the town. So he doesn't want to shut it because he doesn't want to piss off the mafia. Sheriff Brody's wife, Ellen, who in the movie, they're like a loving couple, have their two yeah. sons, they're very happy, devoted to each other. She wears really cute clothes in that movie, by the way. Oh, yeah. And her little head scarves. Yeah, her little scarf, and she's got those little flares jeans on. So cute. And her perfect little tans. And yeah. her, it's like her little cute little bod. Yeah. So in the book, they are not happily married. She's very depressed, misses her life when they lived in the city mm. before they had children. So she's an unhappy housewife. And she's in the in the book, she ends up having an affair with, with Richard Dreyfus's character. Shut Hooper, up. Oh my God, that's so weird. That character in the book was more attractive than you would think Richard Dreyfus. Like are Richard you saying Dreyfus Richard Dreyfus isn't attractive? <laughs> Just kidding. No, no, not, not having an affair with that guy. So she has an affair with him. And then Sheriff Brody is kind of thinking that they're having, they're getting it on or something. The mayor makes a pass at her. Like there's all this like sexual Jeez. tension going on with Brody's wife. So there's Quint is still in it. The When they're hunting the shark, there's Quint, there's Hooper, the scientist, and then there's the sheriff. But instead of like one long journey out to hunt this shark, they do multiple treks out. Mm. They're okay. always fighting about different shit. At one point, the sheriff and Hooper get in a fight and like he's like trying to strangle them in the book because, wow. of, because of the affair. The other differences are, oh, so like the death of Quint. Oh, so remember in the movie when Richard Dreyfus goes into the, the shark cage and gets sunk into the, yes. and, he's, and he has the harpoon thing and he's trying to go down that way. So in the book, the shark eats him. He gets oh. into the cage, kills him. He doesn't make it. Yep. He's toast spoiler alert if anyone wanted to read these books but yeah and um wow the other difference is quint everyone remembers his death in the movie where the shark gets up on yes. the boat, pretty much just eats him while he's on the boat yeah instead he shoots the shark with a harpoon gets tangled up in the rope attached oh. to the harpoon and gets pulled into the ocean so he's not necessarily chewed up he's just more like 
That's like a much, that's actually to me is like a much darker way to go. Yeah. So he, and then. It's also very symbolic, right? It's like the, the beast that you're trying to kill. Yeah. It's, like it's your weapon that's pulling you down or yep. whatever, you know? So that pulls him in and then the, you know, the, the shark damages the boat. So then the sheriff is floating in the water and the shark is coming towards him. And everyone remembers the ending scene of Jaws, the movie where he, you know, shoots him and hits the oxygen tank. Very anticlimactic. The shark just dies, like swimming towards him, just kind of. Oh, because of the harpoon or whatever. Because of the injuries, just kind of yeah. rolls over, it dies. And then he sinks to the bottom and then pulls Quint down with him. Um, Well, with the exception of Quint's death, I think the edits that they made for the movie are pretty good. I mean, you can't add all that details about the affair. No, there's so much much time. And no, no. Even when I was reading the book, I was like, I don't. Do we need this? Yeah. No, No. I kept comparing it to the movie anyway, and I think the movie is better than the book. Okay. Significantly different. It's one of those rare instances. Yeah, but uh, interesting. That was June 16th. Cool. Or January. I keep January saying June. 16. You wish you were in June. You wish you didn't have no, a snowstorm on the, on, the, on the horizon. I'm, I'm trying to get out of this weather. <laughs> uh, January 16th, 1942. Carol Lombard dies in a plane crash at the age of 33. That's sad. She sounds pretty awesome. And and because she died young and so long ago, there's you know she's not that well known. But So Carol Lombard began acting at age 12. She was known for being funny, foul-mouthed, and very independent. Uh, she was famous for her screwball comedies, and and she was considered very beautiful. She was married to William Powell, a very famous actor, and then they had a brief marriage, and then Clark Gable. And she was married to Clark Gable at the time of her death. Most famous movies that I read, you know, I was reading on the, her list of her IMDb list was My Man Godfrey, and for that she was nominated for Best Actress, and then Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which is that, it's a Hitchcock movie, it's like a comedy uh, so in December 1941, after the U.S. entered World War II, Lombard traveled to her home state of Indiana to raise money for war bonds. She and she went with her mom and her uh, Clark Gable's like publicist, and she helped raise a record two million dollars for the war effort. So the plan was to return to Los Angeles by train from Indiana, but Lombard wanted to fly because she wanted to get home faster. And her mom and and the press agent were like, "Can we just stick to the plan and go by train? We have the t- you know like I don't want to fly." And she suggested they flip a coin. So Ugh. I have written this down. Lombard, quote, won the coin toss. And they flew from Indiana on January 16th. They stopped to refuel in Las Vegas. And the plane took off at about 7 p.m. bound for Los Angeles. It crashed into a mountain just 30 miles southwest of the airport. So because of the war um, having started, the safety beacons that normally guide planes over the mountain range were not lit. So the plane couldn't, you know, it was just guessing and they guessed wrong. Uh, all 22 souls aboard perished. And I, when I read that, I was like, oh, I know of another doomed plane that was the result of a, a coin toss. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know that other famous fucking La Bamba? Oh, I was going to say Buddy Holly. Yeah, he, Buddy Holly, Buddy Richie, Holly Richie. wanted to fly. Richie Valens was sick. The big bopper wanted to fly, had a seat on the plane. And then... It was like, like Buddy Holly's drummer was like, I want to fly too, but there's only one seat. So he flipped a coin with balance and Richie balance, quote unquote, won the coin toss. Ugh, gross, huh? Yeah. I mean, that's just so shitty. She just wanted to get home quicker. Yeah. So sad. So at the time of her death, Lombard was scheduled to appear in a movie called They All Kiss the Bride. Uh, Joan Crawford took over her role. And oh, this is cool. I like this. Yeah, I know. I know we like to shit on Joan Crawford. I a lot, do. But I'll give her. I'll give her props yeah. for this one. She um, she donated all of her salary from that movie to the Red Cross, and the tie-in with the Red Cross is not only obviously a Red Cross is involved in in w- war effort, but they actually located the bodies. So they were in charge of hiking up in the mountains and locating the bodies. The wreckage is still there. Uh, it's just too dangerous to clear, so it's still there. Clark Gable was inconsolable and in uh, Carol Lombard's honor and in sort of like a feeling of patriotism after the accident, he joined the U.S. Air Force. So the SS Carol Lombard was dedicated in 1944 and this was a rescue ship. It was basically just a ship that went out and after some uh, ship was sinking, they would go fish survivors out of the water and it did that several times in the Pacific. And even though Clark Gable remarried twice before he died, he was interred next to Lombard when he passed, which I think is so sweet and romantic. Mm-hmm. Just so sad. 
So yeah, anyway, Carol Lombard dies, age of 33, January 16th, 1942. The next thing, I don't really have a deep dive, but I just think it's, I have a we- like a kind of a weird connection to it because it happened really close to where I grew up. In 1997, on January 16th, Ennis Cosby is murdered at the age of 29. That's this sad. Is this so is so sad. And that's a weird story and too. weird. It's fucking weird. I've always thought it was weird. It never made sense to me. This is, my parents lived in a canyon. There wasn't really a freeway like near them. There wasn't really a freeway near them, but the closest one is this exit off the 405. It's the Sepulveda Pass, which is basically just like, you know, a mountain pass basically to go from the west side into the valley. And there's, it's not residential. It's so boring. It's just, it's a freeway exit. And then it's like rugged sagebrush and like hillside. And there, you can see houses like up in the, up in the canyon and stuff. And it's right near Mulholland Drive, which becomes ritzy and like hoity-toity over there. But it's not, it could not be more boring. It could not be more safe. I mean, it's crazy. And apparently he got a flat tire, pulled off uh, this exit, pulled off onto the shoulder of this, you know, and he was on this road, called his girlfriend. Girlfriend shows up. She says, a man knocked on her. Before she gets out of the car, a man knocks on her window and he's like, open up. I won't hurt you. And she freaks out and speeds off 500 feet away. And then she hears gunshots. So this, the, apparently what happened is this guy, the shooter had been with a group of like three other people and they needed to use a payphone. And they pulled off. There's a teeny tiny little park and ride right there where a bus stops. It's, it could not stress enough how boring and non-urban this area is. The coyotes are there, raccoons. You see raccoons all the time there. So they pull off of this parking ride to use a payphone and this guy wanders off and he sees, like, apparently he says he sees Ennis Cosby's fancy car and he's, you know, on drugs or whatever. And he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to score some money here. And it went awry because Cosby was resistant, I guess. Oh, his name is Michael Markhasev. So he was high on cocaine and heroin. So weird. I, it, it's just so just weird a- that this happened here, that it was a famous person's kid, that it was, I mean, it's just bizarre. Just this weird, bad luck setup scenario. Wrong place, wrong time. So weird. That was big news when that happened. Mm-hmm. So January, do you have anything for January 17th? Mm-mm. So that's just, I'm not going to go into it, but that was the Northridge earthquake, which was like a huge part of my um, teenager dumb. I was a freshman in high school. It's the biggest earthquake I've ever been in. It was the scariest and most destructive earthquake I've ever been. Normally when there's an earthquake, you know, they happen maybe once a year, whatever. You wait to see how big it's getting. I usually get in a doorway, which apparently you're not supposed to do anymore. When I was a little kid, that's what they always told us. This was the kind of earthquake that we left the house. We fled our house. People ran out of there. Like it was so bad. The house was absolutely trashed. I mean, everything was on the ground. There was no, it was damaged and needed to be repaired, but it was not um, like nothing, like no, like no ceiling crumbled or anything like that. But Mm -hmm. like, it was just like a gigantic mess. So it was crazy. It's crazy. I can't imagine how terrifying that is. I will say that the loss of life is very low. It's lower than even a winter storm. And um, so they're terrifying, but they're, and then our, you know, the way things are built now, there's very little structural, you know, compared to like poor Haiti with just, you know, the destruction was so bad because they're they're They don't have modern um, building codes. So, you know, I remember when we had, we had one here. Oh, really? This was like such a running, you had to have seen these like memes that went around. So it was significant. Like I was sitting at my desk yeah, and like literally felt the, the building was moving. But you, you, would you not, you wouldn't have thought it was an earthquake though. Right. Because you're like, I don't, we don't have those here. No, I think we, I thought something would happened in the building. Like, like an explosion was some, or something. Yeah. yeah. But, it, but there was no like sound. It was just literally so like weird. this like vibration. So yeah. We all left the building. I remember being outside with Sandy uh-huh. and everyone's out there and everyone's like looking around and then everyone gets these alerts. that It was this earthquake. Nothing happened. Wow. Totally mild, but crazy. And yeah, like really, that's so weird. It was, you know, nothing. There's no damage. But then it like snowballed, like, um, like the lawn chairs, yes. knocked, the lawn <laughs> chairs knocked over. Like we will rebuild. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> we can, remember we, that. we will survive. Like yeah. it was so stupid. But again, when you think about stuff that you've experienced on the West coast, it's I, pales it, in comparison, but when you never have them ever, no, no, it's a little bit, uh, nerve wracking. Yeah. It's crazy. It got, it got us like out of our final exams though. They were like the following week and they gave, <laughs> it was all like an average. It was great. Yeah, it was great. It's wor- all worth it. Yeah. January 18th, 
1986, January 18th, that's what Friends Are For reaches number one. So apparently this was originally written by Burt Bacharach and Carol Sanger, and it was recorded by Rod Stewart in 1982, but nobody knows that one. Rod Stewart? Yeah. And then Dionne Warwick, Stevie Wonder, Elton John, and Gladys Knight decided to come together and record it for, as an AIDS charity song. And that's the one we all know. I didn't know it was an, did you know it was AIDS charity? Yeah, no, I didn't I had know. No idea. A, I didn't know it was a fundraising song. No. I had no idea. It was, it was to raise money for AIDS research, which is cool. Uh, January 19th, not, I'm not going to deep dive it, but Dolly Parton's birthday, 1946, January 19th. Happy birthday, Dolly. National treasure. I saw on January 19th, that was uh, when Muhammad Ali saved that guy from killing himself. Oh yeah. That's very sweet. I didn't read the whole story, but yeah, I don't even, I didn't even see the circumstances. Yeah, he, uh, uh, some young guy was on a ledge of a building and was up there for a while and they couldn't get him down. Numerous attempts, people on the ground chanting for him to jump. Like he was up oh, there for, for a while. Oh, for Pete's sake. Jesus Christ. He ends up, ends up deducing that this guy's a war veteran, and but he thinks he's like still oh. in Vietnam, you know, thinks the enemy is after him. And then uh, Muhammad Ali had a friend that was there on the ground, called him, told him this scenario. And he's wow. like, I'll be, I'll be right there. Drives, <gasps> drives like there in a car. Well, so he gets there, shows up in his car. They let him in the building. He ends up like talking to this guy and get, brings him in. He tells wow. him like, I'm here for you. I'm not going to leave you. Ends up like bringing this guy in and saves him. It's amazing. To think that he, I'm going to save that guy. Like to have yeah. that, that like the confidence. That, that, like, yes. Like that, like thought, like I'm going to, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to, I'm going to bring that guy yeah. in. It's amazing. I can do this. I can, he, I can talk yeah, him down. But he always was like that. Like yeah, he's kind of cocky, but like, yeah. yeah, he's great. Yeah. He freaking did it. He did it's it. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if they ever, what he, I think there was, you know, he was trying to help him like down the road too, but yeah, he freaking saved that guy. It's amazing. Just like awesome. rolled up in his car. I'll get this shit done in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> put this baby to bed so um we just talked about a chair the charity song that's what friends are for january 28th 1985 we are the world is recorded so in the interest of not having our show focus on tragedy and murders i thought i might talk about this for just a couple minutes mm-hmm. it was inspired by band-aids do they know it's christmas which we've talked about is always fun for us to listen to and like name all the celebrities mm-hmm. as they sing along we Are the World, it was Harry Belafonte's idea to record a song that would benefit African famine relief. The song itself was written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie, and it was produced by Quincy Jones and Michael Omardian. Omardian? Ken Cragen handled the fundraising. So there were a couple of recording days before the 28th, just for Michael and Michael Jackson, Kenny Rogers and Lionel Richie and Quincy Jones. They did their own thing and had like certain things that they sang. But the big night with all the stars was January 28th. And it was following the American Music Awards. Most of the artists that sang on, on We Are the World actually came straight from that award ceremony. So they like pulled up in their limos and they're like nice outfits and everything. And they pulled an all-nighter. They did this all night. They got there at like midnight and did it all through to like, they didn't rap until 8 a.m., which I think is kind of, kind of cool. Yeah, they must have had a blast. Yeah, and for obvious reasons, it was not publicized. Because can you fucking imagine if like the paparazzi got wind of this? I mean, not all these people. All those people at one spot. It was held at A and M Recording Studios in Hollywood, and the song itself was released on March seventh, nineteen eighty five, and it was an instant worldwide commercial success. It became the fastest selling pop song in history, won three Grammys, and became the first certified multi platinum single. I think it was quadruple platinum. I think that's what it was. So um, I had this quote that I thought was interesting. So this is about the fundraising. Four months after the release of We Are the World, USA for Africa, that's like what the group was called. That's like what it's on the credits and the organization that raised the money. Taken in almost $10.8 million. That's the equivalent of $25 million today. So that's just four months out. Uh, The majority of the money came from record sales within the US. Members of the public also donated money, almost $1.3 million within the same time period. In May 1985, USA for Africa officials estimated that they had sold between $45 million and $47 million worth of official merchandise around the world. Organizer Ken Cragen announced that they would not be distributing all the money at once. Instead, he revealed that the foundation would be looking into funding a, a long-term solution for Africa's problems. And in June 1985, the first USA for Africa cargo jet carrying food, medicine, and clothing departed for Ethiopia and Sudan. Included in the supplies were high-protein biscuits, 
high protein vitamins, medicine, tents, blankets, and refrigeration equipment. So since it's released, We Are the World has raised over $63 million for humanitarian causes. 90% of the money was pledged for African relief, both long and short term. Uh, The long-term initiative included efforts in birth control and food production. The remaining 10% of funds was earmarked for domestic hunger and homeless programs in the U.S. So from the African Fund, over 70 recovery and development projects were launched in seven African nations. These projects included uh, aid in agriculture, fishing, water management, uh, manufacturing, and, and reforestation. And training programs were also developed in African countries of Mozambique, Senegal, Chad, Mauritania, uh, Burkina Faso, and Mali. So it kind of did a lot. I mean, that was interesting. And I just want to read, because I think this is an incredible list of performers. Now, the people listening who aren't 100 years old are not going <laughs> to recognize some of these people. But did you have, like, the, I think I had the 45. Did you have it? I said, I absolutely did. And my friend uh-huh. Caroline Stringer had on tape the, the behind the scenes, like making of, we watched it till that fell apart. It was so much fun. It's the best. You can watch it on YouTube, by the way, the making of We Are the World. So the conductor was Quincy Jones, soloists in order of appearance, Lionel Richie, Stevie Wonder, Paul Simon, Kenny Rogers, James Ingram, Tina Turner, Billy Joel, Michael Jackson, Diana Ross, Dionne Warwick, Willie Nelson, Al Jarreau, Bruce Springsteen, Kenny Loggins, Steve Perry, Daryl Hall, Huey Lewis, Cindy Lauper, Kim Carnes, Bob Dylan, Ray Charles. So now the chorus. The first one on the chorus is alphabetical. The first one on the chorus, people always like to make fun of because they're like, what's Dan Aykroyd doing there? <laughs> well, they're obviously not old enough to remember the Blues Brothers, I guess. There because, you go. You know, he can sing. Motherfucker can sing. Okay. The chorus alphabetically was Dan Aykroyd, Harry Belafonte, Lindsey Buckingham, the Huey Lewis and the News. He had a bunch of the singers and drummers were in that and stuff. Sheila E., Bob Geldof, Bill Gibson, also of Huey Lewis and the News, Chris Hayes, Sean Hopper. Those are both Huey Lewis. I guess Huey Lewis was really involved in it. Jackie Jackson, Latoya Jackson, Marlon Jackson, Randy Jackson, Tito Jackson, Waylon Jennings, Bette Midler, John Oates, Jeffrey Osborne, Oh, and the Pointer sisters, Anita Pointer, June Pointer, uh, Ruth Pointer, and Smokey Robinson. Pretty cool. It's kind of everyone who was famous at the time. That's an awesome lineup. Yeah. I actually think it's a great song. I know it's cheesy, but I love it. No, it's catchy. Hey, it was a hit, man. Yeah. You still still know the words to that one. Yeah, it was so parodied too, but it was great. Okay, so that was January 28th. Do you have anything else for the 28th? No, I had... I had January 23rd was that green buyer ghost. Oh yeah. Do you want to back it up and tell me about that? What is that? January 23rd in 1897. Whoa. Old school. Yeah. <laughs> so the green briar ghost, this is the ghost of Alva Zona Heaster. I think it's pronounced hmm. Heaster. Um, Some name. She, she was murdered in 1897 in Greenbrier County, West Virginia. Originally, after she was murdered, it was ruled natural causes and then like childbirth. But then there's no mention of her being pregnant or having a baby or losing a baby or whatever. That's weird. She was originally, it was originally ruled natural causes and then ended up spiraling into this, a murder trial, the case being reopened against her husband. Wow. The way that this case becomes reopened was the victim's mother testified that her daughter's spirit revealed herself to the mother. Oh my God. And told her the truth that my husband murdered me. Erasmus shoe. It opened up, it opened up the case again. The prosecutor was John Alfred Preston. He started re-interviewing people. And one of them was this doctor. And they said that the prosecutor probably had a lot of pressure from the public because once this ghost story started like spreading, everyone was kind of like interested in it. So he interviewed this doctor who examined the body after she was found murdered. And he admitted that he didn't really do a complete exam that justified an autopsy. So they exhumed her body and the autopsy revealed that her neck had been broken. Her windpipe was smashed. There were finger marks on her neck, which I wonder how long she was actually in the ground to actually see finger marks on her neck. Yeah. And her neck was dislocated between the first and second vertebrae. And then ligaments were torn and ruptured. They ended up putting her husband Erasmus shoe on trial. And then this trial opened up this whole can of worms about this guy's crazy past. So he had two previous wives before Elva. The first wife ended in divorce and she accused him of like horrible cruelty. The second wife died mysteriously after less than a year of marriage. Mysteriously? So this, like she just died? They don't, they didn't say how she just mysteriously. 
So the star witness of the trial was Mary Jane Heaster, the victim's mother. She even was cross-examined and stood her ground and didn't, her story did not change or waver. And she was adamant about her daughter's ghost coming to see her and being specific wow. about her being murdered about by her husband. And the whole, everyone, the public believed her. They were convinced that this really happened. Yeah. And uh, he ended up being found guilty and wow. spent his life in prison. So there was different, uh, this ended up being a drunk history episode, which oh. I never saw it. Yeah. In 2019. But there was one writer, her name was Katie Letcher Lyles. She wrote a book about it, The Man Who Wanted Seven Wives. But she was saying that the mother came up with this story to get the case reopened. Like she knew her daughter was murdered. Right, right. So I'm going to come up with this crazy tale to get public opinion involved and put pressure on this dude to, to get her daughter's body exhumed so she could get this trial open again. You know, right. It wasn't really like that. That's, that's the only evidence she had. I mean, after they dug her up, they found that yeah. she'd been strangled. And so, so. Yeah, maybe this mom was just like, listen, I know he killed her and you know, this guy's got a CD passed and what do I got to do to get this, you know, attention back on him and open yeah. up the case again. So, okay. My daughter came and visited me one night. Yeah. <laughs> Des- desperate mother. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it worked. Sounds like you did it, though. I mean, I don't, you know. Yeah. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. Spooky. I never heard of it. No, I never have. Now I want to watch that Drunk History episode. Pretty cool. I just have one more thing. It's really not. I'm glad you skipped Bud Dwyer. Yeah, we can do that another time. Yikes. First of all, I couldn't believe he was in his 40s when I saw his picture again. I know. To our listeners, um, I skipped over something that's pretty dark. Uh, A politician in Pennsylvania famously shot himself on live local television. Uh, his name is Bud Dwyer. And I was going to deep dive it, but I just, I think. It's really. Like, when you hear my next it, it, uh, discussion topic, I think you'll understand why I wanted to dial back the uh, the sad tragedy <laughs> parade here. Definitely. So January 28th. 1986, USS Challenger explodes 73 seconds after takeoff. So Lauren and I were in grade school when that happened. Yeah. I remember it. It was a big deal. I remember the lead up to it. It was teacher in space program. Krista McAuliffe was going to teach a class in space, and she was a teacher selected among 11,000 applicants from all over the country. And she spent a year training with NASA, and it was so exciting. And then we watched it. A lot of us watched it live. And I don't know about I, you, but I don't really remember understanding what was going on. So you you remember watching it in school? Yeah, but I couldn't tell that that wasn't supposed to happen. I was just a dumb little second grader. I didn't. I couldn't tell that that wasn't supposed to happen. I have no memory of it. And I even asked my friend Karen, who was in my second grade class, if she remembered it. And she goes, "I feel like I remember it, but I don't know if that's just me or other people's like versions. a false memory." Like, yeah. yeah. So yeah. she's like, she's like, I do that a lot. I don't know if that's just, but I don't remember, like I I was in second grade. I know who my second grade teacher was. I know where I was sitting in that classroom, but I don't, but I don't remember sitting in the classroom with it happening. Like, I don't even remember. I don't remember coming home from school and like having the conversation with it. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, I don't remember that part. I, I remember watching it and I remember the teacher went to the doorway and said something to other teachers and they just turned off the TV and then we just. Maybe the, maybe it was a non-event like in school like that, where it was like, you know, we had it on. We didn't even grasp what really happened. I mean, how the does a kid know? I mean, there's already yeah, there's an explosion and, anyway up there when they lose. Yeah, and then the teachers thing. just shut it down. Like, oh, yeah. it's done. They're up there. And then yeah. I just, so maybe it wasn't like this, like. <gasps> I feel like, like a lot of things are like that. Like you, you see it and like, if you didn't know what it was, would you know that it was an explosion, that it, something shouldn't have happened? Like I, I didn't, didn't, just didn't know. I only knew from the body language of like my teacher. That something was up. Yeah. So the explosion was right after takeoff from Cape Canaveral, Florida. All seven souls aboard perished in the explosion, and they are Francis R. Scobie, Michael J. Smith, Ronald McNair, Ellison Onizuka, Judith Resnick, Gregory Jarvis, and Krista McAuliffe. She was the teacher and space um, designee. Uh, Krista was to be the first civilian in space. She had an alternate. The alternate was Barbara Morgan, and they both trained a year before the launch. So following Chris's death, Barbara Morgan assumed the role of the teacher in space designee. You know, she taught, made public speaking appearances and was an education consultant and curriculum design expert. And she, she actually was an astronaut. She was, she was selected to be trained as an astronaut and she flew 
you know, she went to space in 2007 for a two week mission, successful mission. So, so the alternate that nobody really thinks about as just like this lucky lady who wasn't on the challenger um, actually did go on and have a career with NASA, but back to the disaster itself, disaster was caused by a failure of two redundant O-ring seals. They're like these circular seals. It was in the space shuttle's right solid rocket booster called SRB. The record low temperatures of the launch reduced the elasticity of the rubber O-rings, reducing their ability to seal the joints. So like the temperature drop, it was so cold that rubber doesn't behave the same. You know, it's not, it's like stretchy. So it couldn't really adhere and make a nice solid seal. The broken seal caused a breach in the joint shortly after liftoff which allowed pressurized gas from within the SRB to burn through the wall to the adjacent external fuel tank. This led to the separation of the right-hand SRB's aft attachment and the structural failure of the external tank. Following the explosion, the orbiter, which included the crew compartment, was broken up by aerodynamic forces. And I have bad news. They did not die in the explosion. They During the recovery, they found that the cruise compartment was intact until it hit the water and they probably died on impact to the water. Their bodies were, I don't know what the word is they used. It's something gross. Like they were not intact. So the remains were found and they, you know, they, they had a funeral, but it was just terrible. So sad. And you can look at pictures of the, there's really, really sweet pictures of that, you know, cause they trained for a year together, this team. And there's really a sweet pictures of them. Like together and training. They're in the zero know, gravity thing, so, holding And they're so young and, and excited and I yeah, don't know. She's a mom and like they were all became friends and it just like seemed like such an exciting thing. And and like, can you see the pictures from when it actually happened and the footage? Like, yeah, the it's the pictures of the yeah. people on the ground watching it, like looking up and seeing it and realizing, oh, this, this isn't what's supposed to happen. It's so It's exactly, sad. that's, that's exactly the worst part of it is that the explosion people was that like were all explosion, there, but like her mom and dad and sister, like there's a, there's like sad pictures of them. Apparently they could hear a warning from Cape Canaveral that was like something's malfunction, a malfunction warning, they call it. And they were like, what's going on? And then that's when they, like literally a second later it was the explosion. And then that's, it's just gasps and. Yeah. Cause what was it? How many seconds after it took off? Like 70, so quick. 73, 73 seconds. So it was really fast. Like that insane high and excitement. And then yeah. just like. Total devastation. And, and you know, you you things can go wrong in space, obviously, whatever. They didn't even get to space. I mean, it's so sad. It was like right in front of all their family and loved ones and friends and so yeah. sad. Um, and it unfortunately, they did it. It was investigated. The Rogers Commission is the famous commission that investigated it. And they found, they determined that both NASA and the aerospace company Morton Thiokol, I don't know how to pronounce that, had overlooked evidence that indicated the potential danger of the SRB field. Fuel joints. So they knew that these O-rings were problematic, that they were not, they were too sensitive to temperature. Like they were made of a material that was too sensitive to temperature. So anyway, sorry to be a Debbie Downer, but that's, that was the last thing. Do you have time for the rec room? Yeah, sure. Oh, I have a correction from last episode. Very, very offensive thing I said. I said, when I was talking about the movie Pride, about the LGBT activists in the eighties in England who joined up with minors on strike, I said, I think I referred to them as English miners and they were Welsh. Oh, you're going to. Yeah. I, get it. I, I can't believe I didn't get hate mail for that. I guess we don't have any listeners in Wales, but apologies. Welsh miners. Okay. Uh, rec room for me this past two weeks. We binged the third season of Afterlife. <gasps> so did we. Were you bawling your eyes out? Yes. I, the last episode really, really weeping. kicked me in the ass. I was weeping. Oh, it's so good. I, I know. Like my sister hasn't watched it, a, a, any of them. And I'm like, you have to. Because it's funny too. It's funny too. Yeah. But it's like, it's very, the baseline is, yeah, he's a grieving spouse. Yeah. Missing his wife and can't function and can't think of life without her. But he's also, and he's a prick, but he's a really nice prick. <laughs> I love him so much. He's not even a prick. He's just like a curmudgeon, you know. And a smart ass. He's a real ball, like a yeah. ball buster, but he's but so he's funny. But he's a really good guy. And Every character in that show is so great. Yeah, they are. They really are. I love his, I love Kath in the, in the. Oh yeah. She broke my, and and she broke my heart this season too. Oh my God. So sad. Yeah. So we, we watched that. What else? I started reading that Jonathan Franzen, Franzen book. And then I still come back to it, but you know why I stopped? Oh, is there a new Stephen King? 
It came out in August. I know. I was going to ask you about that. I had forgotten that. I didn't even know about it. And now I'm like, what's it called? Billy Summer? Billy Summers. I just got it a couple days ago and I'm already on 200. That's how quick I can read. Wow. You are a Stephen King junkie. Yeah. And I don't know what it is. Like I must be this the way. I don't know. I just love everything that he, but this is good. It's about um, 200. Wow. You're a machine. It's about an, an assassin. And it's like, he's, he's doing his last job plans on retiring. And it's just, he knows that the job, there's something wrong with this thing. He probably never should have agreed to do it. And it's just cool. That's what I've been reading. Series that we watched. We watched yellow jackets. It's on. I want to start that one. I don't have showtime. You got to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love Juliet Lewis. So I feel like I should. She's great in it. (laughs) I thought it was going to be like, highbrow. Like I thought they were kind of going to try to compete with HBO Max's like, you know, sort of cerebral like Siri, but it's like kind of campy, fucking fun and campy. I can't explain it, but it's, it's very good. It's clever. And they they have five seasons planned. Really? Yes. The cliffhangers are ridiculous. I asked my one girlfriend if she was watching it or if it was good. Shout out to Megan. She's a listener. Hey Megan. And she said that there's a lot of like Cause I guess it's the flashbacks to when they're yes. younger and, and then, our age. And she's they're, like, it's they're all our age. age. Yeah. So she said, that part is really neat. So I do yeah. want to say it. I got it. Uh, and New Jersey. It. It's, they're, they're from New Jersey, by the way. Oh, I didn't know that. They don't say, wait, do they say what part of New Jersey? I don't think they say, I think they just say New Jersey, but hmm. they don't have accents or anything, but it's, it's supposed to be like, you know, middle-class high school, New Jersey, whatever. Um, I thought it was great. Then we watched on HBO max. We watched that landscapers. That's the one with Olivia Coleman. Oh, my brother started that. He said he couldn't get into it. It's weird. It's um kind of like they said they were trying new things. Like it's kind of strange. Like it breaks fourth wall and it's it's really weird. But I thought it was good. It was well done. And like act, you know, Olivia Coleman. Holy shit. Did you watch? Oh, speaking of her, I watched The Lost Order. I didn't. Lost that's Order. on my list. Did you like that? No? I'm making a smell. For our listeners, Lauren's making a smelling shit face. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it's. No, I didn't love it. I thought it was really slow and drawn out and it was filmed pretty like, I don't know. And Olivia Coleman is so talented. She's so great. And, you know, you could listen to her, you know, read the phone book. She's a national treasure. And Dakota Fanning is really, really oh. good in it too. She's in it, but it, uh, and it touches on a topic that people don't really talk about with, you know, mothers not being satisfied as being a mother, like wanting more yeah. in life than yeah. caring for their kids. But I didn't love it. I wouldn't say run out and see it. You're you okay. Won't miss, you won't be missing anything. Um, well, if we're talking about stinkers, Daniel and I watched a British procedural called The Capture that had, it was so good. It had me right up to the end. And the ending is unacceptable. It is unacceptable. Oh, that's the worst. Oh my God. I want, I want like all those hours back. I'm so mad. Where did you watch that? The Capture. Um, is it current or is it like, was like you- BBC or something? TV miniseries. No, yeah, it's it's recent. It's BBC One. Oh, 2019 was on. I guess was on it. It was not good. Bummed out about that. It was really good until the end. So, and then um, we watched a movie, a weird Norwegian movie called The Worst Person in the World. That was good. It's like oh, I I saw the trailer for that. Yeah, it's good. It's just about like a girl, like in kind of like figuring things out in life, and and it's kind of like about her loves and things like that, and. It's good. It's very good acting. It's in, filled mostly in Oslo, which I had no idea is an incredibly beautiful city. And it's good. It's good. It's like kind of, you know, it's artsy. It's not like action-packed plot, but it was good. That's about it. That's it for movies. I feel like I watched, oh, it was because it was Cary Grant's birthday. I watched North by Northwest again. Oh, I love that movie. I knew I watched something that was like not a new movie. Yeah, I, I did watch that one. And then I started watching, um, what's that Paul Newman movie? The summer one with Joanne Wooler. Oh, yeah. What is that one called? Long Hot Summer. Yeah. He's so freaking hot. Yep, The Long Hot Summer. Oh, he's he so handsome. So handsome and like incredible. So that's all I got. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you like what you're hearing. Uh, it really helps us in search results and whatnot. Also, follow us on the gram. Old School Podcast is our handle. Uh, we post fun retro vintage stuff. All, our email is oldschoolthepodcast at gmail.com. So I know there's a the in our email address and there's not a the in our Instagram handle. It's because I didn't have a lot of choice and somebody had already taken the other one. So oldschoolthepodcast at gmail and then Instagram is oldschoolpodcast. And thanks so much for listening. It's good to see you, Lauren. 
Good to see you too. See you in a couple of weeks. Yeah. A couple of weeks for sure. Listen, good luck with the snow. Okay. Oh yeah. It's fine. I don't, I don't gotta go anywhere. It'll be fine. Hunker down. When's it supposed to hit or whatever? Tomorrow. It's supposed to start tomorrow. It's going to really start Friday night into Saturday. Okay. So you're have a, a weekend snow. Saturday we should wake up with some good accumulation. I got all my junk food. Fun. All right. I'll have see you. Have a good you. weekend. Bye. You too. Bye.